Father, as I look around, we see the world increasingly fragmenting into all sorts of, of pieces. I pray, Lord, that as Ray is leading us through Romans, we will see that, we will understand that, yes, indeed, without you, there's nothing that binds us together. You are the one who holds all existence together. And in you, all things find it. And so, Father, help us as true followers of yours to not be part of the fragmentation in them versus us, but for us to remember that we were once strangers and idiots, that you called us to yourself, that you welcomed us into your family, that you have stretched out your arms wide, even for our hearts were fully obedient to you. You stretched your arms out wide and you called us to yourself. And so, Father, I felt we able to be ambassadors, as it were, to a world that has desperate hurts, that we would be showing people that they can be included in your kingdom. They don't have to be circumcised. They don't have to give up eating pork. They don't have to get rid of cats or whatever it is but that you welcome and the Holy Spirit begins a process transforming one of us into the great of your Son who is obedient. Thank you, Father, that in you is true inclusivity, that you do not shut us out, only unless we choose to be shut out. So, Father, I pray for this class, that we will be ambassadors, that we the good news of Jesus Christ and the reconciliation he accomplished. To every little prayer that we cover, let us not be oblivious to the needs around us and show us how we ambassadors to every, every second. Amen. Let's get into the book of Romans. We're going to continue in a very, very important portion, verses 9 through 20. This portion, Paul is wrapping his first major subdivision, wrapping it up, coming to his conclusions here, writing to the people in Rome, Rome being one of the places that we will plan to visit next next year, 2019. The believers there, I've been emphasizing that uh, what we have here is not written to the unbeliever. It pertains to the unbeliever. It describes what it's like to be apart from Christ, but it's written to you and I, to believers, through inspiration to us as well, because we need to understand the nature of the human heart to be able to reach out to a lost world to understand why they have a need and to try to convince them of that need. But as I mentioned last time, there's also a purpose for us as well, because we still have the old nature with us. So all that we're talking about concerning the unbeliever, we still carry that around in the flesh. And when we get past this section, it'll deal with how to resolve that issue. And then the next subdivision, how to deal basically with the flesh. In other words, the Christian walk, or we could describe it as sanctification. So we are looking at the beginnings of God's provision of his righteousness to a lost world. In order to be receptive to understand it and to receive it, we need to realize the issue of condemnation, verses 18 through 
the end of the portion that we're looking at, 320. We've already seen the guilt of all of humanity and the focus primarily Gentiles, verse 18 through the end of chapter 1. The guilt of the Jewish community, all of chapter 2 and the first part of chapter 3. And then last week we began looking at verse 9 guilt of all of humanity, kind of wrapping it all up. He's given the evidence for the guilt of all, and now he's going to bring it home. So that's 9 through 20, the portion we're looking at. We looked at verse 9, a summary indictment of guilt. So all Jews and Gentiles stand guilty before a holy God. And I also used kind of an illustration that the human heart is such that We deny reality. We don't face reality. The illustration here is a little kid that is denying what is obvious from the evidence. The evidence all over him says one thing, and his mother is accusing him, and he says, no, not me. I did not eat the cake, even though the evidence goes against it. So the verses that we've been looking at lays out that evidence But our hearts resist that. The unbelieving heart resists that and doesn't want to face up to reality. So he concludes verse 9 with both Jew and Greeks are all under sin. All under sin. Now the Bible speaks, and we're going to go back to the topic of depravity, a major (laughs) biblical doctrine. It's described in different ways. This is more of a theological description. In fact, I believe in what theologians call total depravity. So I gave you an introduction to that. I'll review that real quickly. But some of the phrases that are used under sin, kind of a broad idea, we've already seen in chapter 1, we're under wrath. So to be under sin means we're under wrath. Verse 20, chapter 1, to be without excuse or the literal word there is to not have a defense. Without a defense, it's the Greek word where we get apologetics or to give a defense. They are without a defense, the unbeliever. We also saw that as a result of man rejecting God, God rejects mankind. This is another way of speaking of being under sin. And that's emphasized in verse 24, 26, and 28, also of chapter 1. It's also mentioned in verse 32, the unbeliever is worthy of death. That's what it means to be under sin. Chapter 2, verse 1, the Jews are also without a defense or without excuse. So both Jew and Gentile. Self-condemned, Jews stand self-condemned as they condemn others. That's what it means to be under sin. Storing up wrath. That's the inevitable of being under sin unless there's a change. That's verse 5 of chapter 2. And verse 8 of chapter 3, condemned. All of these are phrases that you can find in the biblical text. The summary of that is in verse 9. All Jew and Gentile, Jew and Greek are under sin. The same idea. Now, in the next verse, I think we have another summary passage that describes the same thing. So beginning in verse 10, Paul is going to deal with this issue of total depravity, and he's going to deal with it in stages. He's going to talk about sinful character, first of all, 10 through 12, and then in 13, more 
sinful actions, so character and conduct, you might say. I used the analogy last time, uh, Paul building a case as if he's in an ultimate courtroom, a spiritual courtroom with the ultimate judge, God himself presiding. God is both judge and jury. So in that, we have an opening statement, verse 18. I use that analogy, that all are under God's wrath. That's kind of an opening statement, and he's going to develop that. God has revealed himself adequately to every person on the planet that has ever lived and will ever live. Revelation of God, that's uh, verses 19 and 20. And then man rejects that. So in 19-32, he presents the evidence against mankind including and predominantly Gentiles. And then chapter 2, the evidence against the Jews, as I just summarized earlier. And then 1 through 8, he's going to deal with the arguments that the Jew might counter or counter arguments or protests is the way I described it. In other words, what about this, Paul? What about this? Don't the Jews have some advantage? So he answers all of those. So in a courtroom, it's like Paul dealing with the arguments of the defense. And then we looked at verse 9 last time. He's going to give the final charge. And that's why I call it the indictment of guilt. Now we're going to look at 3.10 through 18, the final proof. And he goes to the final authority. He goes to the ultimate law or the Old Testament that everyone recognized as ultimate law in the first century. So the first sentence doesn't even begin in verse 10. It begins in verse 9 after the second question. So it just continues, as it is written, there is none righteous. We can go down to the period. It ends in verse 12. So we'll break it down into its, its parts. Look at each part. As it is written, beginning in verse 10. So... It's even in quotation marks and capitalized, even though you will not find this exact phrase. You'll see things that resemble it or are similar to it, but it's not an exact quote. Some theologians, and I kind of lean in this direction, view it as more of a summary, and then he's going to give the details. In other words, it's another description of lost humanity, it's another description of man's character or man's nature or another description of man's relationship or lack of relationship to God. Man is not righteous. So when it says it is written, he's going to string together either quotations or you might say this might be an allusion to some passages. We can look at those as well. Or you can view it as a summary of all of the others that he's going to lay out here. But it's the essence or it's the heart of the Old Testament when it's describing the unbeliever. When it describes a person that has no relationship with God. None righteous, not even one. There is none righteous. Now, we mentioned last time that there's many misconceptions. I won't go into detail here, just summarize them real quickly. Uh, This concept of total depravity, it almost sounds like the first misconception, it's as wicked as one can be. That's a misconception. That's not what theologians mean. That's not what the biblical text means as well. When it talks about 
a man that is not righteous before God or under sin. It doesn't mean that sin has worked its way all the way to the end. So a man is not as wicked or as evil as can be is not a description of total depravity. It's not anything less than human. Some view it that way. It's not lacking in knowledge. We saw that even in chapter 1 because everyone has a revelation of God. So it's not a lack of knowledge. Everyone is aware that they are accountable to God. They suppress it, is what verse 18 says. It's not lacking a conscience. It's not what total depravity describes. It's not incapable of showing kindness toward others. That's a misconception. Some of the nicest people we said last time are unbelievers. They can show kindness, common grace, but that's not a description of total depravity. And I gave you a photograph. I say, is this a description? Is this the picture of total depravity? What was the answer? No. Yes, oh, yes. yes and no. <laughs> no, in that this is a picture of the end product of depravity. In other words, when it's fully worked out, you have a manson. So it's not a description per se, but it is a description of depravity in that you see the outworking of where depravity can end. So we put a check mark there, and then we ask the question, is this a picture of depravity? Yes. Yes. If you've had children, you know, so you put a check mark there. So it's not that she has worked it out to its end product, but biblically, she is in just as much need for a savior as a manson. She has is just as liable to the working out of sin as anyone else. As cute as she is, that doesn't overlook the internal. So, yep. I was going to give a little example. Oh, <laughs> an example from your own experience. From our five. But when they got to a certain age, it was very young. Yes. Um, they had their crib. They were in their cribs. And they were in there. And they would say to each other, you say yes, I'll say no. And they'd go back. And forth, okay, I'll say, you know, they'd switch. <laughs> They're practicing. <laughs> and you never taught them the word no, did you? <laughs> it was too much it's because it's internal. It's there. So that is a picture of depravity. Because even a child, obviously, is in need of righteousness. So we described it. Man is wholly inclined to evil continually. Westminster Confession describes it in that way. And you see it in little children, their inclination. You don't teach them these things. You counteract it with teaching. You try to overcome it by discipline and teaching and correction and that sort of thing. So it's the inclination. So that little cute little girl is just as inclined to sin as a manson that has carried it out to its end product. You could also say it's the total inability to do anything good spiritually or anything eternal, lasting, that is good. That's total depravity. So all the good works of an unbeliever don't have any impact. In other words, they are not part of a scale that changes God's mind in terms of that relationship. Even an abundance of good works is not going to overturn the even the tiny sin that all possess. 
tiny in our viewpoint. So it's the inability to do anything spiritual. It's having no ability to gain anything from God. No merit in mankind. In fact, faith is not meritorious. Faith is trust, believing that what God has done is adequate. Believing in that sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's on that basis and that alone that we come into that saving relationship. So these are descriptions of total depravity. Now, the reason we're introducing this, there's one more, but the reason we're introducing this is because probably the central passage of all of Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament, is the passage we're looking at in the book of Romans, beginning in verse 9 through verse 20. This is the central passage that deals with depravity. We have a couple of others that are briefer and not as long as this one. In fact, we're going to look at one of them. So this is why I'm introducing this, because this is the central passage to this doctrine. This is another description, totally (coughs) affected by sin. So when we say total depravity, we mean every aspect of who we are is tainted by sin, is depraved. Every aspect of the old nature. And you'll see on the outline sheet, I've listed the first four. When we get to verse 13, there's at least four, in fact there's more, but at least four more in this passage. Four more areas that were affected. So just quickly, our hearts are affected. Our spirits are affected. Our minds are affected. Our will is affected. I just noticed I've got the first two reversed. Uh, they're going to be reversed on the uh, slides that I present. So that's a description of total depravity. Are all those characteristics present in that cute little girl? Yep. yep. She's affected in every way. Are all of those obviously descriptions of a Manson? Yes, and everything in between, from a small little child to the end product. That's a description of total depravity. And other than the Holy Spirit's work in our lives, that's still us. That's still us. the whole nature is still there, and every now and then you just run smack dab mm-hmm. into that character. Exactly. In fact, this doctrine is important because it not only gives us the nature of the unbeliever and the gospel message... Part of it is convincing the unbeliever of his condition and his nature, because if he's not convinced of that, then he has no sense or no idea that he has a need to resolve it. So when the unbeliever comes to a realization, in other words, he's convicted of sin, then the Holy Spirit can, you can present the, the good news that Jesus has resolved that issue. And it's only through Christ. And when people come to that realization, then they are in a place to be able to trust that that is true. That what God has done is adequate to change man's condition. So it's important to understand the nature of the unbeliever. This is why the book of Romans is written to us. But, as Mary Lee pointed out, it's also the nature of the believer in the flesh. We carry that same inclination, that same depravity with us until we are released from it and we're plagued by it. Chapters 6, 7, and 8 are going to deal with how do we deal with that problem. 
And if you read chapter 7, Paul kind of reveals his own heart. He says, the things I want to do, I can't do. The very things I hate, those are the things I do because we still have the flesh and we battle it. Chapter 8 gives the resolution as to the key and it's walking in the Spirit. I'm kind of giving a preview here. So it helps us to understand our own nature, our own inclination, and the fact that we're still plagued with it in all of these areas as well. So that's the main application we can draw in the passage. And it also tells us why salvation must be by grace and why it is necessary, why grace is necessary, because there's nothing in man that can change depravity. So that's your introduction again. Quick review of it. We spent more time last week. Verse 10, as it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. That is what depravity means. To not have a right relationship with God. Righteousness, it deals with standing before a standard, before the ultimate righteous one. And sin is falling short of that. And all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, so there is none righteous. Now, I already mentioned I take it as kind of a summary of the totality. In other words, it's a summary of everything else. So included in that is the spiritual aspect. And uh, we can go to Ephesians, but let's look up some other ones. Somebody look up Isaiah 64, 6. Got it, Connie? Ecclesiastes 7. Who wants to do that one, Bob? 720, Psalm 143, 2. Somebody else get that one? This just kind of reinforces this idea of this brief statement in Romans. You got it? And we'll all turn to Ephesians 2. And we'll look at it. Who's got 64? Connie? 64, Isaiah 64, 6. But we are all like an unclean thing. All our righteousnesses are like filthy rats. We all fade as a leaf and our iniquity wind taken us away. Okay. Paul may be alluding to that very passage. It's not exactly a quote, but it's kind of a broad statement, brief statement. Isaiah kind of expands it. And it says that all of us are this way. All of us are without righteousness. What about Ecclesiastes 7.20? Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good. Same thing. There's not a righteous man. In other words, there's none righteous, not even one. So Paul may be summarizing this passage. It's not an exact quote, but maybe a summary. We have Psalm uh, 143.2. Do not bring your servant into judgment, for no one living is righteous before you. Okay, no one living is righteous before you. Kind of a prayer back to God. And then the Ephesians passage, let's take a look at it. In Ephesians 2, I think Paul summarizes total depravity with the little word, dead. And remember he's speaking to the church at Ephesus... They have trusted in Christ, they're believers, so he puts it in the past tense. This is what your condition was. You have life now, but in the past you were dead. This is a summary of what it means to be unrighteous, deadness, spiritual deadness. And I think it deals with spiritual issues. 
obviously they were breathing, they were living, they were walking, they were talking, they were doing things. But in terms of their spirit and in terms of anything eternal, they were dead. He expands that. Notice what it says. You were dead in your trespasses and sin. This is before they were wiped out by forgiveness. Then he lists a few things here. So unrighteousness, Romans 3.10, I think is another way of talking about spiritual deadness. It deals mainly with our standing before God. In Ephesians 2, it deals with the world in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world. So deadness, being under sin, being unrighteous, means that our inclination is to do what the pressures of the world dictate, or to please those that are in the world, or to conform our lives according to what seems right in the world, not according to what's right in relationship to God. Ephesians 2.2, 2. the world walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. What is that a description of? Satan himself, prince of the power of the air. In other words, the world is under his control. He acts with, with some sovereignty over the world. He acts like a prince. And he operates, he's the power of the air, in other words, everything around us, of the spirit, acts in a spiritual way, that is now working in the sons of disobedience. In other words, he's actively working in the unbeliever, in the heart of the unbeliever. That's what it means to be dead. That's what it means to be under sin. That's what it means to be unrighteous. And if we read, again, it's 2-2, that's Satan, the next verse, 2-3, the flesh and the mind. Among them, we too, Paul includes himself with the Ephesians in the past, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the <coughs> desires of the flesh and of the mind. In other words, we responded to whatever was inside of us. The origin of sin is the inward part, the spirit the heart, and were by nature, this is depravity, children of wrath. So being under sin means we are ultimately facing wrath. Being under sin means we're children of wrath, related to wrath. That's a description of total <coughs> depravity. Deserving wrath, two, three. Other descriptions of the same thing. There's many of them. So when we describe total depravity, the Bible uses a variety of words coming from a, a variety of different perspectives. One perspective being lost. Something that's lost is in a desperate situation. Being blind, not able to see spiritual things. Being naked, that's another way of describing not having spiritual covering. Righteousness is spiritual covering. It's a positive. We're described as helpless. There's nothing we can do to change the condition. That's depravity. We're called evil. That's depravity. That's under sin. That's unrighteous. Bible has a variety of words that describe this. Defiled. In other words, we have been corrupted or defiled. Darkened. In the dark. 
There's dangers out there, and if you can't see them, you're going to fall into pits. We can't see correctly. We're condemned. That's a legal term. So it comes from different perspectives. Useless. We're going to see that in the passage in in Romans, in verse 12. In other words, we're created with a purpose, but that purpose is totally lost. That's depravity. It also says corrupt. That's the parallel passage we'll look at in Psalm 14. Corrupted. It's not the same as the original creation. In bondage. We're slaves. Other passages speak of us being slaves to sin. Romans calls us enemies of God. We don't have a right standing. We are enemies. And there's other words as well that we could add to the list. But here's just a a handful. Ran out of space on the slide, so I had to stop. To describe spiritual deadness, describe being under sin, being unrighteous, and that's why theologians come up with a word that tries to capture the whole thing, total depravity. Make sense? So it's a spiritual issue, and that's captured in Romans 3.10. It's also a heart issue. Let's look up Jeremiah 17.9. Who wants to do that one? Mark 7.20.23. As you can see, there's many passages that deal with all of these different aspects. We've got Jeremiah, Ellen, Connie, you want to do uh, Mark? Heart is more deceitful than curable. Okay, the heart is incurable. That's depravity. Deceitful. And what's the last phrase there? Who can, who can understand it? The unbeliever doesn't understand himself. The unbeliever has no perception of who he really is in relationship to God. The gospel is designed to give him that understanding so that he can see his true condition. So Jeremiah 17.9 deals with the heart. That's total depravity. So our hearts are affected. Our spirits are affected. What about Mark 7? This is Jesus himself, Connie. Mark 7, 20 through 23. And he said, what comes out of a man? What comes out of a man that defiles a man? Okay, defiling. We saw that as one of the words. Here's one of the passages that speaks of defilement. From within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, murder, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, licentiousness, no eye, blasphemy, strife, foolishness. All these evil things come from within. Okay, they come from within. Now, these things are in the heart. That's what Jesus says. So all of the actions emanate from an evil heart. Or you might say a depraved heart. Or a heart that is unrighteous. A heart that is under sin. A heart, you could add all of those other adjectives. Naked, blind, corrupted, everything else. So I think that's part. Our hearts are affected. Now, it's not mentioned specifically here in Romans, but I think the phrase unrighteous or not having righteousness is a summary of all of that. So, not even one. Now, I think this comes from a passage we're going to look at in a moment here, Psalm 14. I'm going to show it on the slide so you don't need to look it up. But it kind of stresses the universal aspect. There's not a single one that stands in a right relationship with God, including the cute little girl on the slide. 
And all of you don't need to be convinced, especially those that have or have had children. You see it. It's evident. Not even one. And then uh, verse 11, there is none who understands. What does that deal with? Another aspect, our minds, understanding, our rational capacity. We don't understand. Now, it's not talking in an absolute sense. The unbeliever can have a PhD and have great understanding of some things. In fact, what does Romans 1 say? What's the stress of Romans 1? The world, nature, science. Yep, we understand lots. That which is known, he's talking about the unbeliever, that which is known about God is evident. There's understanding about who God is, is evident within them, for God made it evident. God has revealed himself. And then verse 20, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly seen. They've been understood. They're perceived. Being understood through what has been made so they are without excuse. So they have understanding. The unbeliever has understanding. But what is it talking about here? There is none who understands. Just like when Paul describes the Ephesians as dead, they're breathing, they're walking, they're living, they're doing things. He's talking about deadness in their inner being, their deadness spiritually. I think he's talking about spiritual understanding. The unbeliever doesn't recognize his condition. He can understand material things. He even has a sense of God. He knows that God must exist. But he doesn't put it together and realize that he needs to take it one step further and trust in a provision that God has made. He's blind. What is 2 Corinthians 4, 4? In presenting the gospel, the unbeliever is blind to spiritual things. He can't see them. So, there is none who understands. So it deals with the mind. That's 3.11. Also in uh, Romans 1.28, just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over, that's the giving over, to a what kind of mind? Depraved. Depraved mind. So not only are we totally depraved, but our minds are depraved, or at least the unbeliever. In fact, the flesh, our thinking is depraved unless we, what do we do? Ephesians 4, we have to renew our minds and learn spiritual things, spiritual truth. Then Ephesians 4, 17 and 18, who wants to read that one? Go ahead. I say... And affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk. Okay, the unbeliever here. Don't walk like the unbeliever, Gentiles. Keep reading. In the futility of their minds, being darkened in their understanding. Futility of their minds, darkened in their understanding. That's depravity. Keep reading. Excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. Ignorance. I'm glad you stressed that. And notice, it's a heart issue. These are internals. So total depravity has affected the spirit. It involves the spirit, our hearts, our minds. And we can go on. 
But before we go on, let's make a comparison here. On the left hand, I have Romans, and on the right, I have Psalm 14. And notice the correspondence here. There seems to be a correspondence with verse 10. There is none righteous. Maybe alluding to this corrupt idea. That's why I see a summary, because it's not part of the quotation. Uh, verse 11, there seem to be some elements of relationship. 3.11 to Psalm 14.2, I'll bring that out in a moment. And if you jump ahead, verse 12, this seems to be closer in terms of quotation. All have turned aside, together they have become useless. There is none who does good, there is not even one. Now, in verse 10 of Romans, yeah, it's repeated, but it also occurs in Psalm at the end there. So, there's a closer parallel in verse 12 of Romans to verse 3 of Psalm 14. They all have turned aside together. They have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. So going back, notice how it begins. This is a description of the fool. Now, on a surface reading, you might come to the conclusion that the fool is a person who kind of says in his heart that uh, there is no God, because that's kind of what the verse says. But put this verse together with what Romans 1 says. Being a fool is a product of making conclusions, okay, of rejecting truth. People become fools. It's not people are foolish and then say things, It's people believing certain things and becoming fools. Does that make sense? See the difference between the two ideas here? In other words, this is not necessarily just a characteristic of a fool that he says stupid things, that there's no God, but because he has already believed that there's no God, that makes him a fool. Notice Romans 1. We have 19 and 20. God has revealed himself. Then verse 21, even though they knew God, there's understanding, there's knowledge, they did not honor him as God. In other words, they rejected him or give thanks, but they became what? Because of rejecting God, what happened to them? Their minds are affected. They became foolish in their speculations. Now their minds are distorted and they're looking at things from a distorted perspective, and they've come to the conclusion that there must not be God, and not only that, and their foolish heart was darkened. So becoming a fool, verse 22, professing to be wise, they became fools. Becoming a fool is a product of rejecting the revelation that God has made. Isn't that describing the whole evolution of creation debate? Absolutely. And more than that, describes the evolution-creation debate. Exactly. But notice the sequence here. Paul gives us the sequence. God reveals himself clearly, such that no one has a defense. Man rejects that revelation, and as a result, it affects his thinking. In fact, it affects his whole being. It changes his outlook, his perspective on things. And now when he thinks about things, that's speculating. In other words, how did things come about? Well, my mind is all twisted now. And if I've rejected the creator, 
then uh, there must be some process like evolution where things came about. So that's speculation. It's not reality, and it's it's actually ultimately foolish. So the mind is made futile. Their foolish heart is darkened. And even though they have PhDs, they profess to be wise, they have become fools. So when the psalmist says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God, there's things that precede him becoming a fool. He's already rejected God, and he says it because he's rejected God, and his mind is twisted, and he's coming to the wrong conclusions. Jeremy. I know we already read this, but I just I just keep being stuck on it, and it's just great. It goes along with that. The Ephesians four um, that that you walk no longer as the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, exactly darkened in their understanding. Mm-hmm. And I think this is interesting. Excluded from the life of God, so that you know another byproduct of the, because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart, and they have become callous and given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity. Yeah, everything comes out of it. Yeah, exactly. Everything comes out of it. So the fool became a fool by rejecting God, and his mind is twisted, and he speculates, well, there must not be a God. Or he rationalizes it away. Uh, Verse 18 of Romans says he suppressed that truth, that reality of God. How would you just elaborate on Romans 1.20 about... His qualities are understood, so in a sense, you know, Libra does have an understanding initially. Yes. Yeah, I, I've i stated several times, especially when we were in the passage, there's no, truly, there's no such thing as a real atheist. What an atheist is, he has had a revelation of God, he has rejected that revelation and rejected God, his mind has been affected by it, He has suppressed that truth, and in suppressing that truth, it's still there, but he has convinced himself that there must not be a God. But then it also says, we have no understanding. Man has no understanding. That's what verse 11 is saying. Once we have perverted our thinking, our thoughts are totally off base. So initially they have a little bit of understanding, they reject it, and they have no understanding. Right. Yeah. It's a process. It's a process. And you also said that the understanding is that... Is spiritual. understand our spiritual issues. Our spiritual condition, and even the, the nature of God anymore, we've got it perverted as well, because we've rejected that revelation. Our whole thinking has been affected. So that's depravity. That's depravity. So verse 1, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. There's that word that describes... Depravity. You know what, Ray? I was trying to open a file that was corrupted last night. Yep. It does not open. It does not open. <laughs> and even if it's opened, everything's messed up in it. it was, yeah. <laughs> and it only takes one little period to mess it up out of place. They have committed abominable deeds. In other words, from that corruption, we live our lives. There is no one who does good. So there's no good in the unbelieving heart. That's not quite exactly what Paul says in Romans 3.10, but I think it's a summary. It's a summary of it. Verse 11 is parallel to Psalm 2.4, and a question is asked, the Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand. So God is probing, are there any who understand? 
Paul answers that question, if you will. There is none who understands. See the parallel there? And as God is looking down, any who seek after God, Paul answers it. There is none who seeks for God. That's the answer. So there's the parallel, direct parallel between Psalm 14 and 3. Then in verse 12, I said, this is more of a quote. They have all turned aside. Verse, all have turned aside in verse 12. Psalm 14, together they have become corrupt. Together they have become useless. Kind of a parallel idea. They cannot fulfill their purpose anymore. Their purpose has been corrupted. There is none who does good. There is none who does good. Parallel there. There is not even one, not even one. And in verse 10, probably picks up summarizing this whole passage because it concludes with not even one. See the parallelism there? So, verse 11, there is none who understands, and we'll conclude with this, there is none who seeks for God. We won't have time to look them up, but uh, that's probably a good place to start next week. There is none who seeks for God. They keep trying to make him in their own image. Yep. And notice also, all have turned aside. So, what does that deal with in terms of our nature? We've seen, obviously, you can look at the outline sheet, our volition, choices. Seeking for God is a decision, is a choice. Turning aside, I'm going to go in this direction rather than this direction. So part of depravity involves our will. And we don't seek God, and we all turn aside. These are, again, just like there's none who understands. That's not absolute. And I'll try to demonstrate that with other scriptures as well. But in our own nature, we don't seek for God. We'll talk about that issue there. And it's parallel with Psalm 14. We'll pick up there next week. It's a good place to stop. So that one gets the damage, and it's that comes. Yep. That's the product yep. in these two passages. Christine, you were talking about all of this. When Jake's describing the fact that a child in the time, did you look at a progression? A child accepts so many things. Yes, they come with that but they believe in a willingness and a, it, it makes sense and they grasp it, they hold it and they, because I think the older you become you the more hardened you become yeah, the progression, because I was going to say there's people that come to the Lord in their 20s, 30s, but it's it gets less and less as you get 40, 50, 60 yes. it changes because you're you're more and more going down the path exactly, these, and it's these harder to overcome that, it's harder to overcome all of this because you found more and more reasons to go in the opposite direction. Right. You've suppressed more and truth and more revelation. Yeah. I don't know. It just kept occurring to me how you described those children who took up the child and with the child. Mm-hmm. Yep. Do we better understand depravity? Yeah. Sure. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh. It's a really uplifting study today, Ray. The uplifting part is that uh, we are freed. We are forgiven. We are cleansed. We have new life. We have the potential of understanding and renewing our minds now. But if we don't avail ourselves of renewing our minds, then our minds remain in that perverted state. Our hearts can be cleansed 
and given a new heart, a soft heart rather than a heart of stone. That's the uplifting part in Christ, and it's in Christ alone. And they have been cleansed. They have been all the gunk in them has been removed so that we can fill them, so that we can be Absolutely. So Christ has reversed all of this, but we are still plagued with the flesh that we battle with day by day, but there's hope in Christ and Christ alone. Closing thought, we cannot do effective evangelism without a proper understanding of man's need. Who wants to close for us? Connie. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for um, the prep of you. Lord, we thank you for salvation as well. Your grace, Martha's service to his father, just their travels and families, just their time and their so many different things still celebrating each other. Amen.